Greetings, everyone. This is Brian Reisman, entertainment journalist and author in New York, and I'll be your official commentarian for this Kino Lorber reissue of The Seduction of Joe Tynan, a film directed by Jerry Schatzberg, and which was star Alan Alda's first effort as screenwriter. We're going to be opening up here with images of African-American school children on a bus going on a field trip, singing songs of patriotism. They're going to be visiting our nation's capital. In fact, they'll be starting off here in a middle-class neighborhood and moving towards the Capitol building as the sequence progresses. Now, the story obviously deals with the Supreme Court nominee, who's a racist, which was something that was definitely considered a bad thing back in the day, and that's good. But times have certainly changed when you see some of the people that are in office these days. Uh, Black Lives Matter, of course, has become very strong as a movement, and it says that we still have a lot of work to be done. This was actually only 15 years after the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. And there's the White House, uh, and with a lot less protection in front of it than we had uh, in 2020. Um, I remember going to the White House as a kid, and I met Rosalind Carter, Jimmy Carter's wife, the First Lady. And a friend of mine joked, don't wash that hand. And right here, there's the Washington Monument, the famed obelisk located within the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Now, The Four Seasons, which is Alan Alda's next film, which he wrote, starred in, and directed, open up with an image of school children on a field trip. Sort of an overhead shot, they're walking along, holding on to a rope. Uh, but that was more of a metaphor for how the, the adults are going to be acting in that film. And right there, we have the Lincoln Memorial, another uh, important uh, landmark in our nation's capital. It played a, an important role in the dramatic finale of Tim Burton's remake of Planet of the Apes, because... I had to go there for some reason. There, now, there are lots of interesting museums in Washington, D.C. There's the Smithsonian, the National Gallery of Art, the Museum, the International Spy Museum, the National Air and Space Museum, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and much more. I feel like a lot of people these days don't necessarily know a lot about how government works, so maybe a trip to D.C. is in order for a lot of us. Uh, I was there a few years ago. I'd like to go back. People should really learn more about how government works and the history of our country. I actually grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, which is where the Revolutionary War started. And sometimes I forget about all the different landmarks there and should probably go back and revisit as a tourist, which would be kind of surreal, but shouldn't take those things for granted. What are we here now, we're supposed to be inside the Capitol building here where Congress meets in the Senate chambers. However, my understanding is that various government buildings in the Baltimore area subbed for Washington locations, while well, notably the Clarence Mitchell Courthouse, and there's also the State House in Annapolis. A lot of this film, actually, a majority of it was really shot around Baltimore. Now, we have a meeting here in the Senate chambers where Joe Tynan, portrayed by Alan Alda, is pitching a bill that he wants to pass that will help people get more jobs, and he's going to succeed. And he, we're going to be seeing, soon seeing him talk to his conservative friend, friend, Senator Bernie, played by Melvin Douglas, uh, a great actor who passed away only a few years after this. There he is on the right, leaning over. Um, Senator Bernie is going to be asking him for a favor, which will form a crucial conflict in this movie. Now, I imagine the empty chamber here might have surprised people back then, but of course today C-SPAN has revealed how banal and often, often empty certain congressional proceedings are. I mean, look at this guy's doodling, and that actually happened. I think there was actually somebody doing that during the hearings about the January 6th insurrection. You think people would want to pay attention a little bit more. Um, you can see how disinterested a lot of people are. And, and, and on C-SPAN, you actually can see someone give an impassioned speech, and there's probably almost nobody in the chamber, though it does get televised and sometimes makes it onto the national news. And since I brought it up, I just want to give a little background on C-SPAN. It stands for Cable Satellite Public Affairs Network and is a nonprofit, nonpartisan channel launched on March 19, 1979, with a speech by then-Tennessee Congressman Al Gore. It combines coverage of proceedings within the United States federal government and public affairs programming. So now we have C-SPAN 2 and 3. The original C-SPAN, which started with only four employees, 
was uh, reached 3 million households. Today, that number is 50 million households, although I wonder how many people regularly watch it. And this movie to story takes place back in the days of bipartisan politics and prior to the era of social media, and I'll be addressing those aspects of modern life during this commentary. Now, the original title of the film was The Senator, and another working title of note was A Public Affair. The latter is better than the former, although the final title is best since seduction applies to many aspects of this story. The movie poster even stated, there are many ways to be seduced. Fame, power, love. Joe Tynan knows them all. Now, here we have a scene of domestic bliss where Alan Alda and Barbara Harris are playing the couple where he has a position of power and she has a much more seemingly normal life, raising their two kids. Um, we don't really know much about a career that she has, but... Uh, you know, they have a very nice life. Alda and Harris actually acted together on stage previously in the Broadway production of The Apple Tree, which opened on October 18th, 1966. And they were both in a show for the first half year of its year-long run. They were both nominated for Tony Awards, Best Actor and Actress in a Musical, respectively, and she won. They have a natural chemistry here. Now, he's always going to have that kind of imbalance in a relationship where someone has a very high-profile job and someone doesn't. Now, Alan Alda and his wife Arlene have a similar situation, but a different relationship, a more positive one than the one portrayed here. They've called each other their best friends, and are a rarity in Hollywood. I mean, their marriage has lasted over 60 years, and they have three daughters. Now, according to notes in the AMPAS library, AMPAS standing for Amer Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Harris prepped for the role in part by reading a book called The Power Lovers, an intimate look at politics and marriage by Myra McPherson. This collection of interviews with political wives reportedly sent shockwaves through DC society when it was published in 1975. And here's an interesting quote from Jane O'Reilly's review of the book from the New York Times in November 1975. Quote, in Washington, political wives have traditionally been subjugated. Forget about their being sex objects. Marion Javits is the only one in this book to have the sense to recognize the right role. I am his mistress, his work is his wife, she says. Most of the rest have staggered along, depressingly aware that they were an essential prop, but not an essential person. Naturally, this role did nothing to increase the wives' sense of self-worth, nor did it particularly inspire those men who legislate such matters as equality for women. The wives owe it to themselves and to the rest of us to change, and some of them are doing so." Unquote. That's a, a rather uh, telling analysis of that book, and it certainly applies to what's going on in this movie, and it certainly will apply to what's going to be going on with Ellie Tynan in that final scene at the Democratic National Convention. Now, also according to the Ampass notes, actor Melvin Douglas, here playing Senator Bernie, claimed that he was astonished by the sexual shenanigans in all the screenplay. Now, at the time, Douglas was married to former Congresswoman Helen Gahagan, I think G-A-H-A-G-A-N, I hope I pronounced that correctly. And I guess when they lived in Washington, D.C., they hadn't seen some of the partying and libidiousness that's in the script here. But Douglas spoke extensively with Alda, and then he looked into some other things himself. So after doing his own personal research, he decided to sign on for the project, which I think is, is very good because he's certainly right for the role, brings the right amount of gravitas to it. Now, first-time screenwriter Alan Alda spent three years writing The Seduction of Joe Tynan. Obviously, this was not the only thing on his plate, as he was very busy starring in the award-winning series MASH on television. He also wrote some episodes. And the year before this, he had to co-star with Ellen Burstyn in Same Time Next Year, about two married people who have an annual affair. He was also in one of the segments of the anthology California Suite from Neil Simon, in which he and Jane Fonda are kind of a, 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 a tug-of-war over their child. I think the ch their, their kid's going to live with him, and there's a kind of ego thing going on. Now, for Alda, the main focus of this story was about the difficult challenge of balancing career and family obligations. He didn't see that issue as being limited to politics, so I think he hoped that the film would have a more general relevance that would allow moviegoers to consider how they handled that juggling act in their own lives. 
And there's also something deeper going on here. This is a story about testing the bonds of friendship, but also staying loyal to your ideals. I mean, can that work at times? You have a liberal and a conservative senator trying to work out a deal that really isn't kosher when you look at it. I mean, Senator Bernie here is just trying to stay in power. He doesn't want the competition in the Senate from this Supreme Court nominee uh, who, you know, could be uh, a problem for him. So. It was interesting, you know, I was talking to my father before I did this about how congressmen back then often compromise by trading votes on issues important to him. Like, I'll vote for, for your bill if you vote for mine, or, you know, they, they might not be something you necessarily agreed with, but if it was something minor, you'd kind of work it out just to keep the, the wheels of government moving. And then I found this feature from the Washington Post called Alan Alda, the Reluctant Campaigner, which was written by Jeffrey Kay and published on August 16th, 1979. It was about Alda and the film. Now, the screenplay for this film was somewhat influenced by Alda's six years championing the, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA, which had left him a bit cynical about the world of politics. He said he felt he could campaign for an issue, but he wasn't so sure about a candidate because he felt a lot of Washington types were more style than substance, and he felt many were not arguing their cases as strongly as they could. So Alder told Jeffrey Kay, I've seen people offer their vote for the ERA for some consideration that has nothing to do with whether or not it would be good for the people they represented. If a woman would go to bed with them, uh, they would vote for it. In one case, if a legislator... Uh, could get his son's high school marching band in the inaugural parade, they would vote for it. Another one said he would vote for it if some movie stars would call him up. Another said he would vote for it if he could get a free trip to Washington so he could meet the president. Unquote. So, um, you know, evidently, even then you had men of power who were also starstruck. I think today in our celebrity-driven culture, you have a lot of these connections being made more and more. It's interesting to me, too, the one living president, or the one president really living or dead from my lifetime that I think I have the most respect for is Jimmy Carter, because unlike a lot of former presidents, he didn't go out and make a lot of money in the corporate world or do other things. He simply, he works Habitat for Humanity, building houses for other people, lives very simply, and I'm really actually very impressed by him. And by the way, this is one of three consecutive politically-based roles that Melvin Douglas played near the end of his career. Beyond this movie, he played the highly connected business mogul Benjamin Rand in Being There, which also came out in 1979. That was a film in which Peter Sellers portrayed Chauncey Gardner, who's a simpleton gardener who had, whose uh, boss had died, and so he was left on his own in the street. Uh, Benjamin Rand's car accidentally hits him, so he takes him home, and Chauncey's simple wisdom starts being taken as political gospel by Rand and other people around him. It's, it's, it's about the ludicrousness of politics in Washington. Now, Melvin Douglas also portrayed Senator Joseph Carmichael in my favorite horror film of all time, The Changeling, with George C. Scott, which came out a year after this film. Now, speaking about all those films I just mentioned, this was certainly a different era for movies, although the tide was turning. This was the dawn of the 80s blockbuster. If you look at the top movies of 1979, Superman was at the top, well over $100 million. The Amityville Horror and Rocky II, Star Trek The Motion Picture in the $80 plus million realm, Apocalypse Now, The Muppet Movie, The Jerk, the James Bond film Moonraker, Alien, and the Bo Derrick uh, Dudley Moore Comedy 10. At number 40 was The Seduction of Joe Tynan, which made $19 million. And at number 50 was Kramer vs. Kramer, which had Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep in a very prominent role for her. That made $7 million. Now, by 1981, you can see things shifting even more because the top movies were Raiders of the Lost Ark, Superman 2. There was 9 to 5, Stripes and Arthur, you know, big, sort of big, bigger budget comedies. Um, and For Your Eyes Only, the James Bond movie was in there. And The Four Seasons, the Alan Alda movie, did make number nine, actually. But, you know, if you go back to 1978, the top ten is movies like Grease, Heaven Can Wait, Every Which Way But Lose, 
uh, California Suite. So even Midnight Express was number 13, and that was a controversial film about a, uh, an American jailed in Turkey on a drug charge. So the 70s movies kind of grappled with big issues and serious themes. The China Syndrome, The Deer Hunter, All the President's Men, Network, Taxi Driver, uh, you know, The French Connection, and many others. I mean, obviously we had blockbuster fare like Jaws, which had a huge influence in people's decision about how far they'd go out in the water at the beach. Uh, you had Close Encounters of the Third Kind, another, uh, the Spielberg movie uh, as well. Uh, then there was comedies like Heaven Can Wait and Animal House, although overall I think a lot of 70s films felt a bit more adult in nature. Um, whereas the 80s brought the onslaught of the teen movie revolution for better and worse. I mean, I am an 80s kid and I loved a lot of that era, but I've learned as I've gotten older to appreciate a lot of the films of the 70s a bit more. I think they're a bit more grounded, of course. By the 80s, that was, that was an explosion of everything pop culture-wise, special effects and music videos and just bigger budgets and a lot more movie magic, as it were. But I appreciate films like this as well. You still had films like this being made then, but I think they were becoming less likely to be in sort of the top films of the year, as it were. That's not that that's a bad thing. Um, I think this film is sort of something that's underrated in Alan Alda's catalog, as well as Meryl Streep's. Um, you know, this is really just before she got very successful, but it's a very good uh, role for her and something that sho it shows you why she was making that transition from theater into film and why she was so magnetic on screen. I would need more this being a film dealing with blocking a racist nominee to the Supreme Court, uh, this is one of the only scenes, uh, ironically, I guess, with an African-American cast member. So here it's Robert Christian playing Arthur Briggs, who is, uh, works for the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, by the way, Briggs died in January 1983, just a month after his 43rd birthday, very young. Uh, in 1981, Briggs co-starred with Richard Pryor in Bustin' Loose, which is probably has the funniest scene involving the KKK that you'll ever see on film, and I think only Richard Pryor could pull it off. So getting back to this film, it's telling that there are few black actors in it and that they pretty much disappear after the first third of the film is over. That may or may not be purposeful in Alan Alda's part that he's talking about this white liberal senator who still lives in this ivory tower situation and now he's being kind of strong arm into doing this, but that's what they had to do at that point, really. And it takes me back to the fact that this is 15 years after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, and, you know, rather interestingly, I think LBJ knew that the Democrats would lose the South for a generation. I think they lost it for a bit more than that. But it was, I'm, you know, obviously, I'm very glad it was passed. Now here, this is Merv Griffin, who is a very real and successful talk show host from the time. The man built a million-dollar empire or a billion-dollar life, let's just say. As it, uh, you know, he hosted the Merv Griffin Show from 1962 to 1985, and it won numerous daytime Emmy Awards in different categories, and he won a couple of them. Now, Merv Griffin created and produced the game shows Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, both of which are still seen back-to-back weeknights at 7 p.m. And he invested in hotels like the Beverly Hills Hilton, um, he was also a singer, and his 1950 single, I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts, reportedly sold 3 million copies. There's a lot I could talk about in terms of Merv Griffin, but we're limited on time here. You know, but it makes me think about the other talk show hosts back then, and also these old tube TVs. I mean, look at this. This is like maybe 15 inches is what we had at home. Uh, maybe a little bigger because they're richer, but, you know, we, people didn't have 40-inch HD TVs, so it was a very different experience. But going back to talk show hosts of the time, you had Mike Douglas, Dinah Shore, Tom Snyder, and Dick Cavett. You know, Johnny Carson was late night and was more glib and was more about the humor, but, you know, Dick Cavett in particular, I've been watching a lot of his interviews on YouTube, and they're really in-depth and interesting, and uh, there was a good back and forth there. You know, and allegedly, I met Dick Cavett when I was five. My, we were in, my family was in a store, and I was looking at something, and he asked me my opinion of it. And I 
I really admire his interview, his interviews, and this is funny. I have no recollection of that whatsoever. But getting back to talk shows, you know, the '70s people sat down. They didn't have all the bells and whistles, the giant video wall. They weren't trying to pump the audience up all the time before the show. It was really different. They, I don't think they even had, especially if they have a musical guests all the time. But you look at what happens, you know, between like a serious conversation between Dick Cavett and someone like Peter Sellers, and you look at what's going on today, and it's much more tabloid. I mean, the talk shows of the '80s steered things into a more trashy and confrontational direction. And it was a lot of that. I mean, there was Geraldo, Donahue, Oprah early on, Sally Jesse Raphael. And then, and, and, and then the one that was really bad, actually, was the really right-wing talk show host. And I think it was a big chain smoker, too, Morton Downey Jr. He just liked to stir the pot. Um, but, you know, this was at the same time I say that with talk shows, the 70s was a time when things were more civil. So it's interesting that Merv Griffin, who was a noted Republican and a friend of the Reagans, has this liberal senator from New York on and they're, and they're being very polite with each other. Um, things are that happens today, but it's not it wasn't like the Fox News paradigm for sure. Now, speaking of civil conversations, here we have Janet Tynan talking to her father. She's portrayed by Blanche Baker, who started her professional acting career just like a year before. And she was hot in 1979 because the year before the 1978 TV miniseries Holocaust, Meryl Streep played a Polish Holocaust survivor and her young sister-in-law was played by Blanche Baker, who won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Single Performance by a Supporting Actress in a Comedy or Drama Series for her appearance in the first episode of the four-part miniseries. So Baker's father, director Jack Garfine, was a Holocaust survivor, in fact. Now, Blanche Baker went on to play Mary in the TV movie Mary and Joseph, A Story of Faith, with Joseph portrayed by Jeff East, who was young Clark Kent in Superman, although his voice was dubbed over by Christopher Reeve. And a controversy emerged for Baker when she did the only Broadway show of her career back in 1981, Edward Albee's stage adaptation of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita, co-starring Donald Sutherland. So Baker was 24 at the time, playing a preteen role, just as here she was 21 at the time of shooting, although playing a 16 or 17-year-old. Lolita was reportedly picketed by feminists and outraged critics uh, out-of-town tryouts, so the show only played 31 previews and only 12 official performances. Um, after that, Baker played Juliet in The Tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, Ginny in Sixteen Candles, the alcoholic wife to a small sound sheriff in the Schwarzenegger flick Raw Deal, and Alf Glenn, one of the handmaids to Robert Duvall's commander in the 1990 film adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. Now, Blanche Baker's been in many other movies since, including Dead Funny, Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, An Affirmative Act, Jersey Justice, the recent film Alice Fades Away, and a 2012 short she wrote and starred in called Ruth Madoff Occupies Wall Street about what happens when Bernie Madoff's wife is cast out of her luxury apartment into a tent amid the Occupy Wall Street movement. That's an interesting premise, actually. Now, here, of course, of, speaking of ivory towers, there we go. I mean, they're, they're right by the Washington Monument. They're clearly uh, uh, literally above the people that they're going to be trying to help. Um, and I decided when I was watching this, I should look back at some of the major events of 1979. I did some research that, you know, it reminded me a lot of things I'd forgotten about and some things I didn't know. Obviously, the Iran hostage crisis took place with dozens of Americans taken hostage at our embassy in Tehran. The Three Mile Island nuclear power plant accident took place in Pennsylvania after the movie The China Syndrome came out, warning about something like that. Russia invaded Afghanistan. Uh, the, there was a biological weapons plant accident in Russia that led to the world's first anthrax epidemic. Uh, U.S. inflation hit 11.2%. Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister of England during a major labor strike and upheaval. She became like the Reagan of the U.K. That was not a good thing for either, either country. I remember somebody, talk show host, asking Alda if he thought the country would be better off under Reagan, and he just laughed. And then another thing I read about... Um, this, I don't remember this. I was a kid. It was after erroneously hearing that the U.S. had bombed a holy site in Mecca. It was actually terrorists who did it. An enraged mob in Pakistan burned the U.S. embassy to the ground. That's pretty 
shocking. Um, the 1970s were a rough time in, in America. I mean, the Vietnam War had ended, but we had to contend with the Watergate scandal and the resignation of President Richard Nixon. There were the first rumblings of climate change coming around as we became more aware of environmental issues. There was the energy crisis with the gas shortage, the Iran hostage crisis, inflation. I mean, there was lots of great pop culture stuff going on. There were a lot of positive things happening as well, but there were a lot of, you know, heavy things weighing on people's mind. Of course, there was the Cold War and the ever-present threat of nuclear annihilation, although I don't think anybody thought it might happen, but still, people, it was, you know, they made films about that. I found an interesting interview, actually, with Alan Alda from around this time. There was a show called Afternoon Plus on Thames Television back in 1979. And the interviewer started off saying that he had just returned from New York and detected a real atmosphere of anger over there. So he asked Alda whether, like, the oil crisis, problems in Afghanistan and Iran, Iran had prompted a change in the American mood away from the post-Vietnam anti-war atmosphere in which MASH had been made. And Alda responded, people are angry in America. In general, I think they're angry at inflation and they're angry at not being able to influence their own lives or influence the people who have control over their lives. And then he talked about the Iran hostage situation, which at the time had been going on for 90 days. It went on longer than that. And so he said, people are very angry, so they take out their anger and then they use sexual expletives to express their anger. There's that funny thing where people express their anger sexually and it makes you wonder if they express their sex angrily. I wouldn't actually want to be hugged by one of those folks. That's actually a funny quote, but I kind of agree with him on that. And it really applies today. We have a lot of hostility going on in this country, a lot of divisionism. And yes, people today really do not feel in control of everything with really, not even just with government anymore, it's big corporations. So, and big corporations who, let's face it, influence government. And it was present back then. And I think some people thought this film was bold for at least touching on it. But obviously today you'd have a much, the story would probably go deeper, though I think at the time, you know, it's quite a good film. And I think it's actually, even though, yes, it, some people don't think it's aged as well, it's a 70s movie, I think there's still things that are very, very relevant and prescient here. Now, to get back to that Thames television interview, there's one other thing that the interviewer brought up, which is that, you know, the Cold War had been renewed. Uh, you know, with the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, and there had been calls for the draft to be brought back, and did all to think that that was realistic? Was America ready yet to send American, young American men back to war? And he said, well, uh, he said, unlike Joe Tynan, I wouldn't run for the presidency. One of the strong reasons is that I wouldn't send people off to war, and that is kind of as a basic requirement of being president, that you're willing to do that. I'm not favor in favor of any registration for the draft, because when they draft you, they put you in the army. I mean, that's sort of the next step, and I don't like that, and I don't believe in it. Now, interestingly enough, Alan Alda would actually portray the President of the United States uh, after that. Uh, I remember at one time he did that was Canadian Bacon, uh, the Michael Moore film from 1995. So, but you know, it's a little different being virtual president rather than real president. But you know, given that interview and, and a lot of the interviews from the time, and even today, you know, Alda was wearing his liberal credentials on his sleeve, although Joe Tynan, for some, I guess, came off as a bit idealistic as a screen character, which has also been said of the Republican that he played on the West Wing two decades later. Um, now, this scene with Meryl Streep is interesting. Uh, it's a leap of faith that she knows what she's doing here, and I learned to fly a couple weeks ago. But, you know, she has a certain charm. There's that Meryl Streep smile. Um, I think about that actually from Defending Your Life and other films, and I'll get into that one later on. But, you know, she's, she's very charming here, and she has often played bubbly or effervescent characters. Uh, she's also been a lot meaner in movies like Death Becomes Her and The Devil Wears Prada. She's great, like, in a more villainous role. But, uh, you know, she's, she actually is always knows what she wants. She knows how she wants the women she's uh, portraying to, be, to be even be written about. I mean, she had issues with the Kramer versus Kramer screenplay where she thought, her character was presented as too evil. And so they actually, the producers agreed with her and they made changes to the script. And I believe she actually even was allowed to change a little bit of the dialogue in the film. And I know I like that about her. I mean, 
she she definitely you know wants to play strong characters and very memorable roles and here you know between the two of them there is a magnetism and chemistry it's a bonding moment between them which is interesting given things that were going on in her personal life and i'll get onto that in, in in a little while and here she's talking about you know how she used to go down there and drive through there campaigning with her father you know and, and letting her letting him know that she knows about washington and also she's pretty ballsy and she's in control of that plane uh that impresses him as well now, this sequence here is interesting uh, with Carla Willis, the woman who uh, is going to have the damning evidence against the Supreme Court appoint or nominee who's going to be outed as a racist. It won't be good for the country, but I like the fact that also she's going to be a little coy. She's not just going to give it up. She wants something in return, and Joe Tynan knows that because that's, that seems to be the, it's going here. It seems that the liberal senator from New York doesn't want to make a stir, but he probably should because this is something that's supposed to matter to him. Now, Carla Willis here is played by Novella Nelson. This was her second film after an unmarried woman, and she's been working as a character actor, often in smaller roles, ever since in movies like The Flamingo Kid, Bonfire of the Vanities, and Devil's Advocate, and she had lead or, lead or supporting roles in Preaching to the Choir, Somebody's Hero, and the Starter Wife miniseries. She's also appeared in roles in TV shows including Damages, Army Wives, and Law and Order SVU, among others. Now today, in terms of this situation where we're talking about this this uh, this footage that's important it's on film but it would probably likely be captured on someone's smartphone and it would be a digital file but back then nobody had a smartphone and mobile phones were only affordable for the rich and the elite and they couldn't take photos so when you have something on a film it's highly perishable now a digital file is perishable in the sense you can click delete and it's gone but it's very easy to make a copy you can also retrieve it from your trash bin if you accidentally destroyed a piece of film like this you'd if it was the negative, you'd hope to have a copy uh, or vice versa. And if the copy was destroyed, well, then you'd have nothing like it never existed. So you could say thing, same thing about a digital file, but that stuff moves around so much more quickly now, especially if it's controversial. A copy is going to be made instantly. This was not the case back in 1979. So there they literally have a smoking gun and they have to protect that asset. Um, what's interesting is that, you know, that the, the that senator there was uh, Anderson. He was talking about the fact that he he would never be for integration, and likely something like that back in the day would be forgotten in the next news cycle until something else came along. These days, it would be archived online and more easily retrievable. Although, to be honest, we have such a deluge of information now that that could also get lost until conveniently it comes up during an election. But considering the last presidency we had, there was so much scandal that things just get lost in the shuffle. Um, as it were. But, you know, some people deserve flack for past things that they've said, and some people don't. I mean, some things come back to haunt you that aren't such a big deal, and there's some things that really should be, but it's all kind of equal lately, and we have to kind of sort that out. Now, something that I think would have caused a bit of a stir and a reaction is what they're talking about here, which is psychotherapy. Now, it's, today we just call it therapy, but back then it, it really carried a more negative stigma than it does today. I think today, particularly, even a lot of celebrities are talking about more about mental health issues. There was one major corporation recently, and I forget who it was, who decided to just give people one week off. They wanted to give their employees a week off during the pandemic uh, to, to, to kind of sort of breathe and, and, and deal with any mental health issues that they had. And, you know, I think that's important. I think we work too much now in this society. Um, now, the aftermath of this scene where they're talking about therapy actually proved to be a bit contentious back in the day. That fictional reporter is writing for McCall's, which actually was a monthly women's magazine back then. Actually, it was founded in 1873 and sees publication in 2002. Now, the editor at that point, Robert Stein, was a bit miffed when he spoke to the LA Times for an August 14, 1979 piece about, he, he was unhappy about how Joe Tynan's aide Francis gets Ellie's admission of therapy scrubbed from the article. Now, in real life, 
that would not have been an acceptable procedure at the publication. Now, no legal action was taken. Uh, it would, that would likely be a different story today. They would either threaten legal action or take legal action or, or make a bigger deal about it. Now, Alder reportedly claimed he chose the name McCall's because they were a highly recognizable national publication that would feature a high-profile interview like the wife of uh, a prominent senator. So, you know, it, it, it was trying to make it real rather than having sort of fake publication, which it would do in a lot of other instances. And getting back to this whole idea of like that, that piece of film being damaging, even a single photo back in the day could cause some damage. I recall back in 1987 when former U.S. Senator, well, that then was Senator, well, actually, no, he had retired. He had retired, he'd quit. Gary Hart, he, he wanted, he was the front runner in the presidential campaign under the Democratic ticket. And this alleged affair with Donna Rice was never proven by the press, but a photo, a photo of her cozily sitting on the lap of a married man didn't sit well with some people. And even as a kid, that's the one thing that I recall about his campaign. So, it, but it wreaked havoc in her life with a lot of people unfairly judging her. And the same could be said of Monica Lewinsky and her affair with President Bill Clinton back in 1998. I think she was more damaged by the criticism and scrutiny than he was. In fact, Hillary Clinton, the first lady, was also more damaged by that than he was. Now, in the 2018 movie The Front Runner, uh, Hugh Jackman starred as Gary Hart, and that brought that whole turmoil back again for Rice. But she was reportedly satisfied by the sympathetic portrayal of her by co-screenwriter and director Jason Reitman. There's a, a current, as, as, at least when I'm doing this uh, in some, September 14th, uh, there's a, an FX series called Impeachment, American Crime Story, which tells the Monica Lewinsky uh, side of the Clinton affair. And she was pleased with that, especially as she was co-producer. Now, if Joe Tynan's affair with Karen Trainer came out, that could wreak havoc for his life and, the, and his wife, Ellie. Uh, unlike Hearts, it takes place just before the 24-hour news cycle of CNN that first emerged on June 1st, 1980. And it is interesting uh, that with, you know, with so many recent past political scandals and worldwide calamities, again, a lot of the stories get buried. Um, but, you know, this story, this film does take place really at the time before news became sensationalistic. I mean, CNN did open that Pandora's box where you start following a story and repeating it over and over again. I mean, news originally was a lost leader for the major networks. Now it's entertainment. Back then it was considered a public service and a duty to cover the news of the day. And... Now it's become big business. It rakes in lots of ad revenue. So things are more dramatic with the music and you have a lot more sound bites. I mean, I've actually grown really weary of, 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 of channels beating the, the life out of a news story. You know, the media starts to lead the narrative rather than following it. And we also live in a soundbite culture. I mean, you have, it's like if you watch the local news, there's a preview of an item that's coming up that's five or 10 seconds long. And then you get to the actual item when they show it and it's like 15 seconds, which really annoys me, which is why I stopped for the most part, watching TV news. I'd rather read about things online, look at different sources, but a lot of people have their source to go through, which is uh, can be a dangerous thing, depending on what you're watching. Um, there was an interview with Alda on NBC News back in 1981, and he did admit at the time that he didn't watch much television. He thought that TV news at that point was really full of junk. And he said, I'm not really interested in seeing who killed whom or how much raspberries cost. I want to get a little more excited about what's going on. You know, he pointed out that they might spend a minute and a half talking about something that was really could threaten the existence of our life on the planet, and then for seven minutes talk about someone who kicked a football around the field. So he was sort of astonished by that and thought about, well, what are they doing? And he thought people should actually really be more responsible in the reporting and what they were sharing. Now, looking at Meryl Streep here, I want to switch tracks. There's a subtext to her performance that we have to discuss because it's not something you would have known about watching this film, and it's something you would not have known about unless you were aware of what was going on in entertainment or you read an interview 
uh, back in the day. But they started shooting The Seduction of Joe Tynan a mere four weeks after the death of her boyfriend, John Cazale. He died March 13, 1978 from lung cancer at the age of 42. Um, he had become a successful theater and film actor, particularly movies, because after he appeared as Fredo Corleone in, in The Godfather, uh, that was a role he would apprise in the sequel, and he appeared in archivally in the third movie. You know, his star rose fast after that. He had major leads or supporting roles in The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Kazali had just finished rapping on The Deer Hunter around the time he died. He did get a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of a real-life banker in Dog Day Afternoon in 1975. You know, he had a very emotive style of acting and was known for bringing his A-game to performances, which would then encourage other actors on stage or on set to do the same thing. So it's obvious to see why he and Meryl Streep had dated. She was very intense and very committed and passionate about her acting. They actually started dating when they met in 1976 while co-starring in Shakespeare's Measure for Measure while doing Shakespeare in the Park in Central Park. I actually just saw Shakespeare in this park recently. Um, so a year after they became involved, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. According to writer Michael Shulman, who wrote the best-selling biography, Her Again, Becoming Meryl Streep, she was devoted to caring for Ghazali and hardly worked over a five-month period. And this was when he was she was rising in the theater world and had done movies like Julie and The Deer Hunter, but she wasn't quite yet a name in Hollywood. So she took care of her boyfriend until his tragic end and was quite grief-stricken. And she could have chosen not to do any projects for a while. Instead, she decided to jump back into work and make this film with Alan Alda. And she has said that Alda was very supportive, I imagine they both emotionally and as an actor. It's gotta be a difficult thing to lose a partner in real life. And now you're going and playing a woman who's having an affair with someone with whom she has to have a certain amount of chemistry on screen. I mean, she's certainly sexy and appealing and smart here, very natural, and they definitely seem to be relating. You can understand why they're connecting. But emotionally, that's not a really easy job to do. There are people who choose to not to be so consumed by grief that it can paralyze them. I and mean, we all react to things differently. There's no rule book or playbook on how you react to grief. Um, I think artists have an advantage in the sense that they can express their emotions through their art in ways that other people probably can't. I mean, so whether you're a painter, a singer, actor, writer, ballet dancer, there's a way to express that grief and unhappiness and channel it into your work. I mean, some people create great works of art out of some a traumatic experience. Not that that's really the idea. That's not what you want to be doing. But I wonder if for Street, maybe this was a way to deal with that in, in the sense that she's in a marriage that essentially is, is dying. I mean, she's married this man, they're successful, they have money, but he's going off to do whatever, and she's left alone. And then she gets involved with Joe Tynan, and that, in its sense, becomes another little death, because by the end of this film, obviously, as you know, uh, they're not going to be together anymore. So she keeps kind of going through this cycle of different people, and uh, in a sense, mourning her marriage. But either way, you know, she said she was an autopilot in this film, and as people have pointed out, if this was her an autopilot, you know, it's better than a majority of other people's work or most other people's work. Now, Streep did move forward from that tragedy. According to Michael Shulman's biography, she had been kicked out of the apartment she shared with John Cazale, Cazale, and then her brother Harry came to her aid, bringing along his friend Donald Gummer, a successful sculptor, and he would actually start visiting her on the set of the film in Baltimore. A, year, a half a year later, the duo was married in the garden of her parents' home. Now, like Alan Alda, Meryl Streep is another example of someone in Hollywood with a long-lasting marriage. They have four children, Henry Wolfe, Mamie Grace and Louisa, that's from oldest to youngest. Henry's a musician, Mamie and Grace are actors, while Louisa is a model. You may have seen Mamie Gummer in the shows Emily Owens, M.D. and The Good Wife, or the movies Ricky and the Flash, co-starring with her mom, and John Carpenter's The Ward. Among other things, Mamie's sister Grace has a number of credits, most notably main cast roles on the shows Extant and Mr. Robot. 
Now I want to switch to Barbara Harris here playing Ellie Tyne, and she's one of those people who qualifies as an actor's actor. She really was in it for the art. And she actually began her acting career as a teenager in Chicago, playing small parts in the Playwrights Theater Club with other up-and-comers then, like Ed Asner, Mike Nichols, and Elaine May. She also performed in The Compass Players, the first ongoing improvisational theater troupe in America, directed by her then-husband, Paul Sills, who she was managed, uh, married to in the latter half of the 50s. So she and Elaine May are considered pioneering women in improv theater. Now, she ended up, members of the Compass Players went on to form the Second City, which of course, a couple decades out, or like 15 years after that, led to SCTV. So, uh, and there was a play that was inspired by that troupe called From the Second City. It became a hit in Chicago. It was a musical, actually moved to Broadway in the fall of 1961. The Broadway show featured her and Alan Arkin, among others, and she got her first Tony Award nomination for Best Featured Actress in a Musical. She did her Broadway work throughout the 1960s. Uh, Barbara Harris was also nominated for a Tony for Best Actress in a Musical for On a Clear Day You Can See Forever in 1966, and won the accolade a year later for The Apple Tree. Now, she was also on television back in the day. She was in Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Defenders. Uh, there was an early 70s animated a Doonesbury special that she lent her voice to. And in 1989, she appeared on a few episodes of Days of Our Lives. Now, on film, some really interesting stuff. She was in A Thousand Clowns. Uh, it came out in 1965 playing Dr. Sandra Markowitz and was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy. Uh, critic Walter Kara described her as the square root of noisy sex and sweetness carried well into infinity. Now, that role was actually originated on Broadway by Sandy Dennis, who won a Tony Award for her performance in that 1963 production. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because Sandy Dennis appeared in Alan Alda's next film, The Four Seasons, which came out two years after this. Now, another film that Harris was in was in 1967, Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's, Mama's Hung You in the Closet and I'm Feeling So Sad. It was reprising her Obie Award-winning role of Rosalie, which she originated off-Broadway in 1962. Harris was also in Neil Simon's Plaza Suite in 1971, and also that year in Who is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me? That's back when you had epic movie titles. She was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for that role. Barbara Harris would land two more Golden Globe nominations for Best Supporting Actress for Robert Altman's Nashville in 1975 and for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy for both Freaky Friday and Alfred Hitchcock's final film, Family Plot, in 1976. Now, in the climactic moment of Nashville, there's, there's an attempted political assassination at a presidential campaign, and Harris, the singer character of Winifred, calms the anguish crowd with the song It Don't Worry Me and gets them to sing along. Now, after Joe Tynan, Harris portrayed the mother to Kathleen Turner and Peggy Sue Got Married, played Fanny Eubanks in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Those were in the mid to late 80s. And her final film role was the mother to John Cusack's hitman character in Gross Point Blank in 1997. So, you know, both Barbara Harris and Meryl Streep have uh, great performances here. They're both nuanced characters and strong women, although clearly Ellie, Talens has, Ellie, Ellie Tynan has a slow boil that really explodes at the end of the movie. I mean, Karen Trainer here is always rather even-keeled. I mean, she's passionate, but I think she's also a bit beaten down. They're both women. I mean, let's face it. These are both women who are being neglected by their husbands, uh, and Joe Tynan certainly comes off as a jerk, uh, you know, because of, of what he's doing. And he certainly realizes it later on, kind of uh, the manipulation that he's been he's been pulling off there. But, you know, Alan Alda wasn't like, didn't play characters that were like him. I mean, he had an amiability and a charm to him, even when he was 
having an affair like here on screen. But, you know, remember Hawkeye on MASH, which lasted from 1972 to 1983. That Hawkeye Pierce was a martini-loving womanizer, and Alda won an Emmy for writing the episode in which his character had to confront his chauvinism by the way he treated a woman who was smarter than him. And I think Alda was aware of that. They'd gotten some criticisms of sexism, but Alda was always aware of those things, so he wanted to make statements about them. And I think that's why he was considered such a desirable person to work with and attractive to many women back in the day. You know, and when I was preparing the commentary for the Four Seasons, which I recorded before this, actually, and is also available by Kino Lorber, they're coming out together, I, I watched a lot of his earlier work. Now, he portrayed George Plimpton in a movie called Paper Line in 1968, which was when uh, Plimpton was actually... Uh, was a football player for a short time, professional football player. But then I was watching this movie called The Mephisto Waltz, which came out in 1971. And, you know, he portrays this sort of failed concert pianist who's now a music journalist, and he goes to interview a successful concert pianist. Uh, they become friends, and the pianist and his daughter, as the pianist is dying, performs a satanic ritual, and his soul goes in Alan Alda's character, which confuses his wife, played by Jacqueline Bissett. And he gets to play the kind of Jekyll and Hyde thing, which is great. And you just watch him, you're like, oh, that's really interesting, considering what we know him for now. Then there's a 1972 movie called To Kill a Clown, in which he played a disabled Vietnam veteran who lives on this island. And he's renting out, renting out a beach house next door to a couple, a young artist and his girlfriend or wife, one of two, played by Blythe Danner. I think it's his girlfriend. At any rate, he develops a friendship with them, but he starts to play this game where he's going to put this artist through boot camp to give him a taste of the military. But because he has these two guard dogs, he starts holding them hostage. And it's kind of a dark, twisted role for Alan Alda. And he, I think he resents the fact that this artist is living this life of ease, whereas he served his country and is now embittered by what had happened to him. Now, there's another film that came out in 1972 that Aldo was in, uh, a TV movie that was an adaptation of Truman Capote's The Glass House, in which he plays a man who um, uh, accidentally kills the man who has just hit his wife uh, on, on the street, a, a, a motorist. And so he sort of shoves him into a car, like I think on the hub of the wheel, and he, not, he, he, damage, you know, he causes some brain damage, or it kills him, actually. So he goes to jail, and it's a really dark look at jail, something that I'm really surprised was shown on TV back in 1972. I remember one YouTuber saying it scared them from ever wanting to do anything bad. It's a really interesting movie. Now, the opposite of this is this spontaneous, passionate, and playful love scene, and I like the way that this is actually uh, shot and done. I mean, Meryl Streep is not known for having done, doesn't do nude scenes, and you're not going to see sex scenes like that with her, so... It's, it's rather unusual, and it, you know, Stephanie's love scenes felt a lot more real and natural than a lot of the 80s, you know, love scenes in Hollywood. Things are very dramatic and uh, windswept hair and the saxophone and keyboards and kind of like it was all supposed to be very, uh, you know, perfect. And this isn't perfect, but this is it. Sex is fun and sex is playful. And these two have a very good chemistry and, again, must have been hard for her to be doing this role when this was going on. Um, you know, and there's clever use of her hair here. I like the fact that, you know, they're they're both naked in bed, but like her hair is covering uh, her, her breasts. And I, I actually, I think it's, it was a great use of her hair and it's very clever. And again, this is also a very natural, playful scene. You know, the fun that they're having after after, after having made love. And, you know, again, in the 70s and 80s, you know, there were a lot of nude love scenes. There's also a lot of Playboy photo shoots going on, a lot of actresses going that route. And Meryl Streep didn't do that. She followed her own drummer. She was going to stay true to her ideals. And clearly, she did the right thing because now she's one of the most successful actresses in Hollywood history, having won Oscars and been nominated for many more. Um, Alan Alda was quite the leading man back in the 70s. I mean, he had love scenes with Jacqueline Bissett and Barbara Parkins. Um, 
the good and bad girls of the Mephisto Waltz in 1971. He was with the lovable, he was, he, he was the lovable yet womanizing Hawkeye on MASH with many different women. He played, was paired with Ellen Burstyn in uh, same time next year in 1978. And he had bedroom scenes with Barbara Harris and Meryl Streep in this movie. But he was, you know, he was seriously, he was attractive to many women for his forward-thinking politics, his feminism, and his likability. He actually wrote an essay for Miss Magazine in 1975 and was on the cover in 1978 in a group photo with other actors and by himself in 1991. And again, he was very supportive of Streep during the making of this film. I think it's something that's very important. Now, let me jump back for a moment. I should talk about Meryl Streep's awards because it's pretty amazing. 21 Oscar nominations with three wins. The first for Kramer vs. Kramer, which came out after this film in the same year. Also for Sophie's Choice and The Iron Lady. A record 32 Golden Globe nominations and eight wins. Five Primetime Emmy nominations and two wins for Five Came Back and Angels in America. 13 BAFTA nominations and two wins, six Grammy nominations. I mean, I could fill up the next three or four minutes just talking about her awards. Uh, she's been nominated for between three and four hundred and one, I'm sure at least a hundred. It's pretty amazing. So she's done quite well. Um, now, this duo actually did reunite when they worked together on a reading of Alan Alda's play, Radiance, The Passion of Marie Curie. He actually held a gala reading of the play with Streep in the title role at Alice Tully Hall in Lincoln Center on June 1st, 2011. Other actors who were a part of that reading included Amy Adams, Allison Janney, and Leah Schreiber. 2011 actually marked the 100th anniversary of Marie Curie's Nobel Prize in Chemistry, another role that Streep is highly suited for. And here we are at a very 70s looking party, complete with bad dancing. Hey, you know, as it should be, right? This came out in 1979. Now, this was the era before people had smartphones. So a lot of the shenanigans you're gonna be seeing at this party were not captured on camera. Now somebody might've had a film camera, but it'd be obvious you were taking a picture. I kind of wondered today if there were certain closed parties like this where there's an agreement not to have your phone out, but you have to be a bit more careful. And obviously this was a more chauvinistic era. I mean, even Joe Tynan, the liberal senator from New York here, is brushing off a lot of Senator Kittrick's BS. I mean, it's very clear the man's a womanizer and cheating on his wife and is a jerk, but he has to deal with them in Congress. Now, looking at this scene through the point of view of Me Too, times have changed, although I suspect there's still plenty of stuff being swept under the rug that we'll be hearing about. More stuff keeps coming out. I mean, let's be honest, there was definitely a boys will be boys mentality at work during this time period and in this scene, and Alan Alda certainly did not fit the stereotype. He went against it, and part of what made him so appealing to a lot of women was the fact that he was a more evolved man. Um, likely back then, just as today, there are people who probably didn't agree with that newer, more sensitive form of masculinity. A lot of people who still uh, like to put up a big front, uh, which of course goes back to mental health issues, like we were talking about earlier, not addressing those. There are a lot of conservatives these days who like tough talk, but that's often not followed up with any decisive or, you know, measurable action there. Uh, one of the things, you know, that was true about politics back then is true today, but I think is more true today is the fact that we're a country that thrives on hyperbole. You know, we have lots of expressions like killing it and stuff like that and making a big deal out of everything. And that's a, a politician's greatest tool these days. And along with evidently the ability to say something controversial and then deny it, deny it the next day, even though it's caught on camera, it's amazing. Back then you really needed proof and now there's proof and it almost doesn't matter anymore. We really do live in very surreal times. 
Now, this blonde woman here is very attractive lady is Carrie Nye, portraying Aldina Kittner, Senator Kittner's wife. This is one of five theatrical films that she did. Uh, she also did The Group in 1966, which is about a bunch of women who are going off, uh, young women going off into their lives and are getting together before they separate and go different places. She was in the 1985 slasher flick Too Scared to Scream. In the Shelley Long comedy vehicle Hello Again in 1987, and the role that I love her for, the first segment of the awesome horror anthology Creep Show, which came out three years after this, the Father's Day segment in which she and Aunt Bedelia uh, meet a grisly end, because of course uh, the, the patriarch of the family comes back from the grave because he wants his Father's Day cake. If you've seen that segment, you know what I'm talking about. If not, check it out. It's, it's awesome. Now, Carrie and I was in a bunch of TV movies and a few shows, notably The Screaming Skull, uh, the soap opera Guiding Light. She was on at least one episode of St. Elsewhere. And she portrayed actress Tallulah Bankhead, to whom she had been compared and more than once, in the TV movie The Scarlet O'Hara War. Now, Carrie and I was known for her theater work. She did a few Broadway shows between 1960 and 1980, including A Second String, Mary Mary, A Very Rich Woman, Cop Out, the Man Who Came to Dinner, and the musical Half a Sixpence, for which she was nominated for a Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical. She was also known for appearing at the annual Williamstown Theatre Festival from its opening in 1955 through the 1970s. She kept acting in off-Broadway and regional theatre productions throughout the 1980s and 1990s. Carrie Nye died in 2006 at age 69 from lung cancer. Her New York Times obituary cited a 2003 interview she did with the Times-Picayune of New Orleans. When she'd been asked to name the favorite role of her career in that interview, she replied, None of them. I only became an actress so I wouldn't have to cook or make a bed. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I think that's actually something that could be said of her role as a senator's wife here. This glib, cynical character who probably doesn't want to do any of that. And she deals with her husband's blatant philandering, which is pretty terrible. Uh, by the way, Carrie Nye's husband was famed talk show host Dick Cabot. I like the sequence in the way that this shot, the fact that it's one big long shot here. Uh, you know, you've got... You've got Senator Kittrick in the background, uh, you know, dancing with, I guess, what people know to be a prostitute. I mean, I, you know, I like this sequence because there's a few different things going on. You see the behavior going on in the background with Joe Tynan trying to brush it off and act normal, or they're all just acting normal, like, oh, this happens. Um, you know, also Karen has come in with a date and is trying to make him jealous. So she may be younger, but she's shrewd, and this will tie into their final scene later on. Uh, you know, it's interesting just to watch the reactions, the amused reactions of people. Uh, you know, politicians often act like rock stars, but in a different way. And I make, I've made the joke that late 80s hair bands uh, were kind of, they were like Wall Street brokers in drag. I mean, they had the same ethos, I believe, that uh, I believe it was Warren, uh, excuse me, Robin Crosby, the late guitarist from Rat, who actually sadly died from HIV uh, related, uh, related illness, that he, um, you know, he said their, their Rat's ethos was pussy party paycheck. And, uh, well, you know, it looks like Senator Kittrick kind of is going along the same lines in a certain way. Now, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously, people in power try to use it to their advantage. And uh, I look at a lot of the sex scandals happening today with politicians. And now that we have smartphones and people are sending off inappropriate pictures, that's certainly come back to, to bite a lot of people in the ass, pun intended. So you have to be careful. Um, it's amazing, actually, how much less filtered people have become. Like, you know that something is going to get you in trouble. You know that saying something online could get you in trouble that you probably shouldn't say. You know that, you know, doing something risky, like sending people a new photos is going to get you in trouble but it's almost like people feel like they're impervious to that and naturally coming up here uh, one of the aides to senator kittrick is going to find out that his boss can pretty much get away 
with that. But back then, things were not discussed openly like that. I worked for a short time in Hollywood in the late 80s, early 90s, and I didn't see any really crazy stuff, but I saw certain confrontations and heard about things. And it's interesting how fear oftentimes keeps people from saying anything about what's going on as we've learned in the in the Me Too era that that's changing, but still there are a lot of powerful people and they can get away with it. Rip Torn is certainly appropriate for this role and he's certainly getting away with a lot. Um, you know, it's funny, there was a site called Metal Sludge, which was a parody of a magazine called Metal Edge, which I wrote for during the last 10 years of its uh, existence. And, you know, you had a lot of groupies that came out and would talk about their experiences with the rock stars. And I wonder if there's like a, a political version of that, like someone who talked about all the politicians they'd slept with. You know, and so you got blatant stories about, you know, how careful they were, whether they were nice and gentlemanly, what they were like. It's pretty amazing. Um, I was actually on the tour bus of a band over 10 years ago, and... I remember seeing a sign right before he got to the bunks on the wall there that said no cell phones or cameras beyond this point. And I asked the tour manager, what's that all about? And he's like, well, you know, a lot of these guys are hooking up with gals, many of whom are not their girlfriends. And someone takes a picture, uh, whether they're with the guy or just back there, and it's being posted on social media. And of course, their partners are going, hey, man, what's going on? So, you know. Uh, I think also this is in the 70s in the era. In some ways, some marriages are probably don't ask, don't tell. Not a great thing, but that's the way it works. Now, I mentioned before, this was the era of bipartisan politics, and they differ greatly from the divisionist partisan politics that we are seeing today. And of course, there's going to be this little eating contest here where Kittrick and Tynan are trying to work out something with dealing with the Supreme Court uh, uh, nominee. This really comes off like a dumb frat boy ritual. And you can tell that Senator Bernie is very displeased by this. But I think part of the reason that he is is because not to be rude, but his, his day has come. I mean, he's getting older. We're going to figure out that he's showing early signs of Alzheimer's when he starts speaking in French and not uh, and not getting out of this trance that he's in. So, but still, I think you know there, there were you always had these kind of back deal or dealings back in the day. Uh, it, it didn't feel that there was many overt machinations at play. I mean, today you have you have two different parties and there's at least one of them that one of them they says we're not going to do vote for this ever. We're not going to do this, Republicans. And at a certain point, you have to you have to start. You know, you, you get extremists on both sides, on the left and the right, who, and it's very difficult to get that compromise. I, you know, I've been told that Ted Kennedy, for example, back in the day, was really great at getting people together and, and having a compromise. I heard that during the Reagan era, that Reagan's relationship with Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill was much more cordial, and it just feels like now we have, it's 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 just much the tone's much nastier. And this is a funny scene. It's rather interesting. I would never do this. In my stomach. Maybe I would have done this when I was in my twenties or thirties. Now, we definitely need to talk about Rip Torn here, who's eating away furiously, and he's going to lose his eating contest. Um, he was actually born Elmore Rule Torn Jr. in Temple, Texas, on February 6, 1931. I've always thought his stage name was rather funny, but it turns out he actually had the family nickname Rip already, and his last name really was Torn. I mean, I actually thought that was a stage name that was created in jest, and I was completely wrong about that. A lot of times you have performers who have these cool stage names, and sometimes you know it's fake, and sometimes you find out, and you're like, oh, I should have figured that out. But in this case, it worked well. You always remember it. Rip Torn had quite a career. He was on Broadway a lot and did three Tennessee Williams play, plays, landing a Tony nomination for Best Featured Actor in a Play for Sweet Bird of Youth in 1960. It really wasn't until he did the Larry Sanders show between 1992 and 1998, for which he received six Primetime Emmy Award nominations and won one as Sanders' cantankerous producer, that I think he really became known on a mass scale. But he had done plenty of interesting things along the way, and a lot of us knew who he was. His first big role was the 1957 film Time Limit, playing a military officer. Then he was in the Korean War film Pork Chop Hill two years later with 
Gregory Peck. He played quite a variety of characters, Judas Iscario in King of Kings, Henry Miller in Tropic of Cancer in 1970. Uh, they were even on set together, the, the actor and the author. He had been considered for Jack Nicholson's part in Easy Rider, but that part went to Nicholson after Torn did not have the best meeting with uh, co-star and director Dennis Hopper. Um, Rip Torn appeared as Dr. Nathan Bryce, appearing opposite David Bowie, who was playing a humanoid alien in The Man Who Fell to Earth in 1976. Torn played Richard Nixon in the CBS miniseries Bland Ambition, along with Martin Sheen, who, funnily enough, would later play the President of the United States in Firestarter and The West Wing. Now, Torn got his one Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor, playing Marsh Turner in the 1983 film uh, Cross Creek. He played General Dick Panzer in Michael Moore's 1995 movie Canadian Bacon, which starred Alan Alda as the president, trying to start a cold war with Canada. Of course, Torn also played Zed, the boss to J&K, and the first two Men in Black films, which were a lot of fun. He also portrayed Louis XV in Sofia Coppola's updating of Marie Antoinette in 2006. He received a nomination for the Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Comedy Series for numerous appearances on 30 Rock between 2007 and 2009. Now, my favorite role from Rip Torn, because I really happen to like this movie a lot, is in Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life from 1991. In that film, Albert Brooks gets hit by a bus, ends up going to this way station between this world and the next, and essentially, it's a place where you're evaluated, you're put on trial, so people, they watch film, quote-unquote, of your life, of the highs and lows, and they're judging you on whether you should, you've learned enough and you can go on to the next plane or of existence, or maybe you should go back and be reincarnated and try learning again. So Rip Torn is this blustery defense attorney who's trying to cover up for embarrassing episodes in Brooks's life. And then, of course, Brooks meets Meryl Streep, who's a woman who's done all these fabulous things like saving her children from a burning house. So the whole idea is him trying to overcome his fear and and, and get through this trial and try to win it. Otherwise, they, he can't be with this woman because she's obviously going to go on to the next plane of existence. But Rip Torn is really fun in that movie. He took a role like that that another actor might have just made it kind of pedestrian, and he made it a lot of fun. Maybe it's not his best performance ever, but I really dig it. Now, in this movie, he's playing an amoral and opportunistic senator. And, you know, he enjoyed playing a lot of irascible and contentious characters. I mean, not always, but it worked when he did. And he died at age 88 in 2019 uh, from Alzheimer's disease. Now, here we have a rendezvous that's not going to go quite as planned. I'm sure we've all been in this situation. I'm not just talking about an affair. Like, you, maybe you want to hang out with a friend, but you don't want this other friend to know about it, and you go somewhere, and they happen to be there. Or you just want to avoid certain people, and they end up being where they are. And, of course, these people right here know who he is, and they're probably wondering who's the, who's the babe with uh, the lunch in the shopping bag. Uh, and I guess a, a good way to try to be out of people's sights is to go on a golf cart, which... Maybe back then seemed like a smart move. Uh, today, probably not the best idea. Uh, and why? Well, it's cool to have this little, in, this little freewheeling ride going on. But in today's world with social media, people got their their cameras out and they might make a little video. This is the kind of thing that, not this moment, but I think maybe the moments. Well, if they're driving, riding around in circles a lot, yes. But the moment where they're going to crash into this little stream here, that's going to end up on someone's Instagram account. Um, and that might seem innocent enough, except that. That person might look at that or someone might go, hey, that's funny, but isn't that Senator Joe Tynan? And hey, who's that babe who's with him, who's laughing? And what are they doing together? And of course, so that's going to go, you know, from one place to another. And of course, then somebody recognizes him and things take off from there. It's amazing how quickly something goes viral. And it, was, it made me think about the fact that pretty much any news story from the last 20 years is more readily archived and easily found than stuff from like, the 20th century. It depends on the news outlet you're talking about. But the reality is, is that, you know, you can look up stuff on anybody. And now, you know, you could have a neighbor who's committed some minor offense. It's not a big deal. 
but you can look it up and find that out about them. Maybe they're embarrassed and don't want you to know about it. Now, you could find out that your neighbor is a convicted murderer, rapist, or something, and that you would want to know about, but it's funny how just everything is out of it. Embarrassing moments in people's lives on the red carpet, everything ends up on there. It's just, it's almost a little too much now. But interesting how news, I think news, as I said, can get buried more easily, and then in some cases, it can not be buried. Now, we're gonna see a pan of the camera here, and it's gonna go over to a Coke machine. And there was a Coke machine in the Four Seasons. There's a scene where two of the men are out getting ice in the hallway. And it makes me, it reminds me of the fact that there really wasn't much product placement in movies back then. There was, but it wasn't like to the extent of what, say, you saw 10 years later in Back to the Future, where there were Pepsi products just polluting the, the, the cinematic landscape there. It was kind of amazing. Um, now, something that was more common back then that I don't think is so common now, hitchhiking. Uh, you know, you saw that a lot more. It was much more common. It was not considered as, well, as dangerous to pick somebody up. I remember even back in the 70s, it was a rainy night, and I think my family, we were coming back either from a camping trip or something. We were in a Volvo station wagon. There was a young man out there with his backpack. My parents gave him a ride, and, you know, he had to put up with me and my brother making goofy jokes because we were less than 10 years old, uh, 8 years old. And so, uh, you know, he was fine. Turns out his dad owned a bike shop in the town next door. But that's not something that, you know, people want to do today. Um, there is, you know, we have sort of a lot more, by the way, I love this, I love the station wagon. We don't really have station wagons much anymore, do we? We have SUVs, still big cars that are unnecessary, but okay. But anyway, uh, generally. So, but you, you have a lot more paranoia and concern from parents now about what their kids are doing. There's a lot more helicopter parenting that you have than you did back then. And, you know, there, you see these memes on Facebook from the, uh, talking about life in the 70s and 80s. We survived, you know, riding our bikes without helmets. Or our parents told us, leave the house for two hours because they wanted to get rid of us. And they didn't worry about us getting abducted. And it's kind of true, actually. You know, people do worry a bit more. And part of that is uh, changing reality in our world. And part of that has to do with the media. Dumb. I'm not gonna get and I think about the media in the context of this. You've got the, the daughter of a well-known politician. And whether you're, you're, your dad's a senator or your dad's a rock star or a well-known face, you know, you fall under a lot more media scrutiny now. Um, faces are certainly more well-known. Uh, and in the age of information overload, things are going to get out there a lot more easily. And at the same time, you know, speaking of media, there are th sometimes, you know, you have to be, the media will pick on certain people. Um, and sometimes you just make a fool of yourself. Remember the Bush daughters, you know, George W. Bush, his daughters were cited by Texas police for underage drinking in 2006. That was embarrassing for them, but that that really just you know, blew over. And that's something that a lot of college kids do. You know, the Obama daughters were well-behaved. They were much younger, uh, and uh, their parents certainly expected them to uphold a certain standard. And as was Chelsea Clinton, although Saturday Night Live did a sketch, an infamous sketch, making fun of her not being so attractive yet, the fact that puberty supposedly hadn't been so good to her, according to this Wayne's World sketch in late 92. I think it was Wayne, played by Mike Myers, who was saying that, you know, she could turn into a babe in waiting. Well, that didn't sit very well with the Clintons, and I think some people in the public. So, actually, uh, the the... The show and network apologized for that, and Mike Myers, uh, the co-star of the sketch, reportedly wrote a letter of apology to the White House, which he should. Um, you know, these days, and everyone is everyone's mean on social media. You don't even need the 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 the, the, the media picking on you. Everyone's mean on social media. They just they don't care. And I must imagine it must be hard to be young and have to deal with that. I've, I've learned that you just have to not deal with people sometimes when they want to engage you because it's just simply a waste of time. But it, it, back then, you didn't really deal with that. Even bullying and cyberbullying, two different things. Bullying is terrible as it is. Cyberbullying, in a way, has become worse because other people see it. It's not as isolated as you think. But anyway, getting here to this rare family meal with the Tynans, uh, 
doesn't go so well, just like the scene at the beginning where they're watching TV. There's not a lot of family unity going on here. And by the way, this was the one role for film role for Adam Ross, who you see here on the left, who's portraying a young Paul Tynan, although he did write the short film Trickle, which came out in 1998, in which he had a small role. Um, you know, there were a lot of 70s films, late 70s films, success like Kramer versus Kramer and other things, ordinary people that would deal with uh, family turbulence for various reasons. And in the 80s, you had that too, but you also had a lot more optimistic view of family life. Uh, even though you did have occasionally films like First Born, I believe, was about a, a kid whose mom is dating an, a, a, a single mom and she's dating an abusive man and how he has to confront him. But, you know, we kind of wanted to have a bit more optimism about what was going on back then in the 80s. Um, you know, and outside of MASH, Alan Alda's late 70s and early 80s movie roles really did focus on marriage and family. I mean, there was same time next year about the that annual fling, California Suite, where he and Jen Fonda are tussling over the child, staying with one or the other. Uh, you had this, you had the Four Seasons movie, which dealt with middle-aged couples uh, grappling with changes in their lives. Um, and so it, it was a way, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't always like the characters he played, but it, was, it looked like he was trying to explore different aspects of family and marriage in different contexts. And that's something that, you know, definitely, I think, defined his work. You know, he wasn't the kind of guy to do, like Meryl Streep, not the kind of person to do superhero movies. Uh, not the kind of people, well, Miss Fistelwaltz was a horror movie, but, you know, they, they're usually generally more about serious things. Or if it's a comedy, it's a comedy about a serious subject, like when Ellen Alda wrote, directed, and starred in Sweet Liberty, which is about uh, an American historian who writes a book on the Revolutionary War, and Hollywood wants to turn it into this film that's rewriting history, and he's not very happy about that. But that allows him to make statements about Hollywood, although I suppose it was done very lovingly because he did thrive in Hollywood after all. But he worked on the inside so he can make those statements. And he really was on the inside from the beginning because his father was actor Robert Alda, uh, who was in the movie that traumatized me the most as a child, The Beast with Five Fingers, about a severed pianist's hand who's come back, come, which comes back to life after he dies. So thanks for that, Alan Alda's dad. I, I still love it. But when he was young, Alan Alda contracted polio at age seven. And I remember he and Carol Burnett, when they were... They did a Q&A recently about the Four Seasons, and they've talked about it before, the fact that they actually sort of met when they were kids, but because he had polio, Alan couldn't go out and play with other kids. So they lived across the street from each other when Alan's dad, Robert, was shooting uh, Rhapsody in Blue, in which he played George Gershwin, and Carol Burnett was there, and so she would play and roller skate with the kids out in the street. She was a couple years older than him. I think she was 11 and he was 9. So they, they almost kind of met. And, of course, ended up working three times later on. Now, Alda began his career in the 50s with the Compass Players, like Barbara Harris. And, he'll, and he was, uh, then he acted in the Kennebunkport Playhouse in 1950s, within the, in 1957. He was part of the acting company of the Cleveland Playhouse during the 1958-59 season. He did a lot of theater in the early days, including Broadway shows between 1959 and 1967 that included Fair Game for Lovers, The Owl and the Pussycat, and his Tony-nominated turn in the musical The Apple Tree. Now, on TV... Aldo was part of the cast, along with David Frost, of the American television version of the British series That Was the Week That Was, which ran from January 10th, 1964 to May of 1965. His Hollywood debut was Gone Are the Days, a film version of the Broadway play Pearly Victorious, which co-starred Ruby Dee and Aussie Davis. Now, I mentioned earlier Alan Alda roles before. It was Paper Lion, The Mephisto Waltz, To Kill a Clown, and the adaptation of Truman Capote's The Glass House. Um, of course, he later became known for MASH, for which he got 21 Emmy nominations and won five awards. There was also California Suite, same time next year. And again, as I said, more amiable characters, more of a romantic lead. Um, 
Aldo would go on to write and direct four movies. There was The Four Seasons in 1981, Sweet Liberty in 1986, A New Life in 1988, and Betsy's Wedding in 1990. Now, just all the actors in The Four Seasons, just like a lot of the actors he's worked with before and since, were Tony Award nominees or winners. You know, he liked to work with theater people, Meryl Streep being one of them. Uh, you know, I mean, in, in The Four Seasons, Carol Burnett, um, oh God, I, I'm not blanking all the names. It's funny, I just did the commentary. Um, you know, Sandy Dennis and Rita Moreno, you know, all these people, they they had either won or been nominated for Tonys. And there's different types of acting you're dealing with here, even Melvin Douglas. So, um, you know, but it's a, it's a different type of acting. I remember interviewing Anthony Mackie about the Adjustment Bureau about a decade ago, and I had seen him on Broadway in a Martin McDonough play called A Behanding in Spokane. So I said, so what's the difference between the two types of acting? And he says, you do less. And... Um, it's a good point. I mean, Meryl Streep is someone who can do a lot with her facial expressions. I mean, and Barbara Harris too, both of them, just they can emote a lot and they understand how the camera works. And there are some actors you can just tell, they make that transition, it doesn't always work and vice versa, actually. I've seen a lot of Hollywood people go on to Broadway. They may have done theater before, but they really haven't been on Broadway or done a lot of off-Broadway and they get there and you can just tell they're not used to it. You can, someone might be too subtle or they're over-exaggerated for what they're doing. Now, all the kept acting in theater actually after this i mean he was in a show called art in in the late 80s and he was in glenn gary glenn ross in 2005 and in love letters recently actually the past few years now he's had recurring roles on tv shows like the west wing the blacklist and most recently ray donovan in movie wise you've seen alda in crimes and misdemeanors murder at 1600 the aviator in which he got a nomination for best performance by an actor in a supporting role and it was not a nice role it's villainous one he was in Tower Heist when I actually interviewed him, and he was in Marriage Story. Marriage Story, like The Four Seasons, is the kind of film that, you know, well, Marriage Story was a Netflix movie, and The Four Seasons likely would be a Netflix or Prime or Hulu movie now and not a theatrical release. Films like this and even The Seduction of Joe Tynan don't end up getting major theatrical releases anymore because they're big event pictures. Now, Meryl Streep can go and do what's considered a big event picture, but it's oftentimes a big event picture like the Iron Lady because of her. I mean, you know, she's not doing action movies and superhero movies, but, you know, she's still had a wide variety of roles. And Alda has two. Might be interesting to see the two of them in like a movie about retired superheroes now that I'm thinking about it. That just came to me. And by the way, something interesting to note about this movie, there was actually a novelization of it done by Richard Martin Cohen that was released by Dell Books on July 28, 1979. It's the kind of thing that was common back then as a way to tie into a potentially popular property since you never knew what was going to be a hit and what wasn't. So unless, of course, the original source material was a book. Fun fact, the novelization of Star Wars was credited to George Lucas, and I read that as a kid, but it was ghostwritten by Alan Dean Foster and actually came out six months prior to the June 1977 release of that film. At that point, it, it had reportedly sold 3.5 million copies. I wonder if there had been the Joe Tynan book before this, even if it had been tied into the screenplay, what that would have done. But I think that was just a rare occurrence of that, that kind of success. Now we're getting here to the Senate hearing. And of course, the man playing Edward Anderson, our Supreme Court, our Supreme Court nominee, was Maurice Copeland. This film actually came out six years before he passed away. He was a member of the Pasadena Community Players Troupe, and he did three Broadway shows in his career. And in, Freedom, in The Freedom of the City, he played a judge. And in First Monday in October, he played Associate Justice Waldo Thompson, and he understudied for the part of Chief Justice James Jefferson Crawford. Now, those were fictional roles, not real-life people. But he had the kind of presence and gravitas to bring to them. 
Now, Maurice Copeland started on television doing various roles between 1949 and 1962, most prominently playing Dr. Floyd Corey in nearly 1,100 episodes of the daytime drama Hawkins Falls, a television novel. He was the cast member who notched the second largest number of performances on that series. Now, his cinematic character actor roles in small parts included the movies Night of Evil in 1962, The Next Man in 1976, Being There in 1979, Blowout in 1981, Arthur that same year, A Stranger is Watching, and his final film role was in 1983 in Trading Places, in which Copeland portrayed the Secretary of Agriculture, so yet another government position. Now, someone who is used to playing similar roles and who has an incredible resume is, of course, here, Melvin Douglas. And I imagine had he lived past 1981, he would have been cast in 1985's Cocoon, that sci-fi film about uh, a group of elderly people who... Uh, end up being rejuvenated by this magical pool filled with alien pods. He performed in over two dozen Broadway shows between 1928 and 68, including No More Ladies, The Birdcage, Inherit the Wind, and Gore Vidal's The Best Man, a, a very interesting political play that kind of mirrors this a little bit, for which he won the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Play in 1960. Now, for 50 years starting in 1939, Melvin Douglas was in over 70 movies, and in many TV series and films, he portrayed Galileo Galilei and Benjamin Franklin, Unlike his character here, Douglas was actually a staunch liberal who was gray-listed during the commie scare in the late 40s and, and, and 50s, the Hollywood blacklist against communists or perceived communists. He did appear in such acclaimed films as The Candidate, which this movie has been compared to, Ninochka with Greta Garbo, The Americanization of Emily, and Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House. He was nominated for three Golden Globes and three Oscars for the same movies, HUD in 1963, I Never Sang for My Father in 1971, and Being There in 1979. He won the Oscar for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for HUD and for Being There, and he won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Supporting Role Motion Picture for Being There. And I love the fact that he did The Changeling and that Ghost Story was like the last film of his career. I love the fact that he did horror. He was also in The Tenant, the Polanski film in 76. That was a creepy role. And it's apropos for him to actually being a playing a Southerner here because he's a native of Georgia. Now getting to this scene, we're dealing with something that is very serious. Um, I mean, this is a character issue, and back in the day, that was, you know, important. I mean, it's amazing today how many conservative candidates are blatantly racist or misogynistic and clearly have no problem getting support from their own party. We have this bizarre state of divisionism. There we go. There's Arthur Briggs. They are coming back briefly to make that appearance. You just saw him there. Now, I look at this particular sequence, and I think back that... Well, I think the fact that 12 years after it, lawyer Anita Hill will be testifying at the hearings for future Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and talking about the fact that he had sexually harassed her in the office and had shown her pornography. A lot of people didn't want to believe her and everyone attacked her. I mean, the narrative was twisted to make to make him the victim and not her. And in the end, he narrowly got elected on the Supreme Court. But, you know, there's still questions about Thomas's character, and a lot of people still side with Hill on that. It was very compelling testimony, and four other women were ready to testify, but were not called to that hearing due to a compromise agreement on the matter between both the Republican and Democratic parties, as overseen by Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Joe Biden. Now, then in 2018, we have to think about the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, a uh, man accused of sexual assault by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. She came forward very bravely to testify against him, and there were two other women who also brought allegations against him. That that nomination was rammed through another close vote. It was actually, I think, where Thomas was 52 to 48, and for Kavanaugh, it was 50 to 48. It was along partisan lines because of the Republican majority in the Senate. Purely partisan politics, very different than, I think, what you're going to be seeing here. Um, now, right here at this moment, and Arthur Briggs is just sort of shaking his head. I mean, 
Senator Bernie clearly showing signs of Alzheimer. And this is the one moment you really do feel sympathy for him. It's not just an old man trying to hold on to his career. He clearly isn't suited for office anymore. And this is a prescient scene because Ronald Reagan developed Alzheimer's after his presidency, although there's some who alleged that he started showing signs of it the last couple of years he was in office. He did show memory lapses during his camp presidential campaign in 1984. Um, but, you know, still, it was, it was officially announced in 1994. Now, speaking of staying in office way too long, uh, I, I was looking this up because I remembered, I, re I recalled Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, and he was in office for a long time, and longer than I even thought. When I looked it up for this commentary, I found out that Thurmond, with the exception of one six-month gap early in his career, served in the Senate from December 24th, 1954 to January 3rd, 2003. He also served as the Dean of the Senate, United States Senate for 14 years, which is the longest period of anyone who held that position. Do you know what his age was in 2003? A hundred years old. That man was a senator for over 48 years, and it was office way past, I think, a time that anybody should be in office. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. That's a long time to be there, and it's a good argument for term limits. At any rate, um, just a little bit of trivia there. You know, the, by the way, this press conference that you're seeing here, you wouldn't have that happen the same way today. It would be like somewhere outside of someone's office. They wouldn't be crammed in there. You do see the media talk to Congress people and senators after they come out of chambers, out of certain sessions, but you don't necessarily see something like this anymore. I'm, I'm actually kind of wondering how much it actually did happen back in the day if this is more of a Hollywood thing. Now, speaking of back in the day, I found a review from critic Richard Corliss from McLean's. He later on became the, the film critic for Time Magazine, and he wrote a review of this film entitled Hawkeye Goes to Washington. And in it, he said, with Alda as both star and author of the original screenplay, you might expect a kind of Hawkeye Goes to Washington. And that's pretty much what you get with this engaging, intelligent actor playing it both ways, suitably cynical and sufferably noble as he sprints down the corridors of power. And Barbara Harris does wonders with a role that suggests Homer's Penelope scaled down to the dimensions of a soap opera masochist. It's a considerable feat of acting that Harris somehow looks 20 years older, really wrecked, because of all that her character has endured through the movie. But he says the best reason for seeing Joe Tynan is Meryl Streep. And he said, a veteran of both Shakespeare and musical comedy on the New York stage, Streep has been cast mostly as a long-suffering girl in movies, The Deer Hunter, and on TV, The Holocaust. Here she gets a chance to be aristocratically sexy and to show off her light touch with a body line. Streep deserves to be the Carol Lombard of the 80s. Joe Tynan deserves a schedule on the 1981, deserves a slot on the 1981 schedule of Tuesday night at the movies, unquote. By the way, this is something called the auto pen, and it was actually around for a long time before this movie was made. It was first used in 1942, and it was preceded by the robot pen from the 1930s. I found a rather amusing quote from an IMDb user known only as Zorro 3. Made a comment about Joe Tynan that said, I was a senatorial intern in the 70s, fortunately never seduced. But this film accurately depicted the city of the time. Watch for the two or three second bit that depicts the auto pen. When I was an intern, I was in interviewed by my small hometown newspaper and I instructed by my supervisor that I could discuss anything. I could even disagree with the senator, but I was not to mention the auto pen. Because, of course, everyone wants to think, oh, I actually got a letter from this senator or the president of the United States. Uh, actually, my dad's parents had a, a letter from Reagan celebrating their uh, 50th wedding anniversary because my grandmother, for a year, actually went to school with Reagan at Eureka College. I guess there was a connection there. Anyway, I found another interesting essay about this uh, this uh, this film from Medium.com by author and teacher Brian Rowe. And he has some interesting insights into this also. He talked about Meryl Streep. 
He said, she appeared in three films in 1979, in each as a blonde, and each as a supporting player to the male lead, but unlike in Manhattan, where she is angry and spends most of her time yelling, and in Kramer vs. Kramer, where she is often confused and trying to find herself before she can accept a child into her world again, in The Seduction of Joe Tynan, she plays a confident, independent woman who knows what she is getting into when she enters the affair. She gets her fair share of emotional highs and lows, especially in a sad scene at the end when she has to say goodbye to a torn-up Joe, unquote. And I agree with that. Now, Barbara Harris is also important to this movie. In 1980, she was nominated for a National Society of Film Critics Awards accolade for Best Supporting Actress for her role here. Streep was up for the same award for, all, I think, all three of the movies she did that year, and she won. Um, you know, they're equally important, uh, but of course, Streep was going to be, you know, was, was the rising star, and Harris had already been feted before. Um, but, you know... The, Harris is one of the two women that Joe Tynan is using. I mean, it's like classic sweat. I mean, it's, it's the woman he needs, which is his wife, Ellie, and the woman he wants, which is Karen. And powerful men seem to have a need to have it both ways. And clearly it causes damage uh, to certain marriages. I mean, you know, you have to be careful. And Alan Alda has spoken about the fact that... Um, you know, he would try to go home to see his kids during productions or between productions because he, he wanted to know what was going on with them. He didn't want to be an absentee father. He was very responsible. And therefore, he was bringing his role as a father uh, and as a public figure into this film. Now, in real life, Alan Alda has three daughters. He was outnumbered by women four to one in his household. Uh, his daughters are from oldest to youngest, Eve, Elizabeth, and Beatrice. Now, the latter two tried their hands at acting, first appearing in their father's next movie, The Four Seasons, in 1981. They had smaller roles there, and they both reprised them in the short-lived 1984 TV series adaptation that Alda developed uh, from the movie. That didn't, only lasted 13 episodes. Now, Elizabeth Alda had one other movie role as the cop in Alley in the 1986 cult horror film Night of the Creeps. I've seen that movie, and I think I actually remember that scene. And since then, she be, she's become a teacher for the deaf, and a special education teacher. Her sister Beatrice had a supporting role in 1988's A New Life, which directed that film. Then Beatrice had a small role in 1990's Men of Respect with John Turturro and Dennis Farina. She was also assistant to the director William Riley on that picture. Beatrice also co-produced and co-directed two documentaries with her partner, Jennifer Brooke. Out Late, which came out in 2008 and is about gay and trans people who have come out later in life. And then Legs, a big issue in a small town, which came out in 2016. The two also have founded the production company Forever Film Studios and have four children together. The only Alda daughter not to appear in one of those movies is Eve Alda, who is now Eve Alda Coffey, who studied psychology at Connecticut College and also attended the Simmons School of Social Work in Boston. I assume she's doing social work at this point. Because I love you, it. I should, you know, and I should mention Alan Alda's marriage because it's it's sort of sort of a little bit mirrored here, but is definitely different in real life. Um, I found a great New York Times feature called Arlene Alda: Life as a Feminist Wife by Judy Klemsrud. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. It came out May 31st, 1981. Now, like her husband Alan Alda, Arlene Weiss, her maiden name, hailed from the Bronx and was quite an accomplished young woman. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Hunter College, won a Fulbright scholarship to study music in Europe, and became assistant first clarinetist for the Houston Symphony. An amazing woman. In 1957, she was married, became Arlene Alda, and turned away from that to you know, help raise their three daughters, uh, uh, all of whom were born within a three-year span. I don't know if they ever had any dramatic moments like this. Well, Every parent has a dramatic moment like this. Now, asked by the New York Times if she had anything to do with her husband's feminism, Arlene replied, I can't claim that. Not at all. From the time I met him, I've only known him to be a fair-minded person. There was no prompting from me. From me, The issues just sort of presented themselves, and he decided to use his visibility to do something uh, he felt very strongly about. I got the feeling that because he had daughters, a concerned wife, I was in the women's strike for peace, and saw social inequities, these all fed in his, into his wanting to do something, unquote. 
During the 1970s, Alan Alda became very vocal about and known for his feminism. He was very supportive of the Equal Rights Amendment. The Times said that in 1976, President Ford appointed him to the International Women's Year Commission. He made the cover of the June 1981 issue of Miss Magazine, and on the cover it read, The most admired man in America is a feminist. Alan Alda talks about work, love, and friendship. He also graced the 1978 cover, June 1978 cover of Miss with Carol O'Connor, who was an all in the family, Esther Roll from the Jeffersons, Ellen Burstyn from the same time next year, and Kate Jackson of Charlie's Angels fame. The proceeds from the premiere of Alda's next film, The Four Seasons, were appointed to a fund for investigative reporting sponsored by Miss Magazine. And he also wrote an essay for it in 1975, like I mentioned before. Now, getting back to his wife, Arlene, she did not abandon artistic pursuits during their marriage. She delved into photography. Photographs of hers were used at the beginning of the four seasons and later in over a dozen episodes of Punky Brewster. Arlene published the book On Set, featuring photos and text chronicling the filming of the four seasons. She also had her own work published in major, major magazines like Vogue, uh, New York Magazine, the Saturday Evening Post, People, and Good Housekeeping. And that New York, stories, New York Times story is, in fact, timed to an exhibition of her photography work that had been curated for Nikon House at 625th Avenue in Manhattan. And I got the vibe from the Times piece that Arlene Alda is a bit like Elliot Tyne in that they're down to earth, not pretentious, devoted to the marriage, but also to their children. Obviously, they didn't have the problems that this marriage does. I found an interview with Alan from 1981 in which you know, he had spoken about trying to be active in his children's lives. And as I said before, visiting as much as he could during the filming of MASH and in, in his film career afterward. And he joked that he would come home and something had happened in school weeks earlier and it didn't get mentioned until he actually showed up. Um, I guess it's just how things worked. And he and Arlene worked and, and still work well together. And they've called each other their best friends. Now, speaking of wives, well, the on-screen wife here, Barbara Harris, I want to get back to her uh, because I found an interesting interview with her by, done by Robert L. Pela of the Phoenix, the Phoenix New Times in October of 2002. She was actually teaching acting in Scottsdale, Arizona at the time, and she would pass away in 2018 at the age of 83 from lung cancer. And she mentioned that she actually avoided fame during her career. She used to try to get through maybe one film a year, and she always chose movies that she thought would fail so she wouldn't have to deal with being famous uh, if, that came, if that happened. And she actually turned down Alfred Hitchcock the first time he approached her about doing a movie. Uh, and then when asked about, about leaving the theater, she said, who wants to be up on stage all the time? It isn't easy. You have to be awfully invested in the fame aspect, and I really never was. What I cared about was the discipline of acting, whether I did well or not. And she actually, I, I don't know if it was half-jokingly or seriously, called herself a has-been in the interview. I think she was happy being anonymous. And when, and it, when it asked if she had just permanently left acting, she replied, to the interviewer, well, if someone handed me something fantastic for $10 million, I'd work again. But I haven't worked in a long time as an actor. I don't miss it. I think the only thing that drew me to acting in the first place was the group of people I was working with. Ed Asner, Paul Sills, Mike Nichols, Elaine May. And all I really wanted to do back then was rehearsal. I was in it for the process, and I really resented having to go out and do a performance for an audience because the process stopped. It had to freeze and be the same every night. It wasn't as interesting. You know, I mean, there's some actors who don't like to do interviews, uh, or actually, well, they don't like to talk about the process and methodology, and there's some that don't like to watch their performances, like I believe Johnny Depp is one of them. Um, and, and interestingly enough, uh, during the, the Four Seasons press cycle, Bobby Wigand had asked Alan Alda if he had any favorite lines from Hawkeye on MASH, and he said he didn't because he actually didn't have any retention uh, of a project he had just worked on. He simply moved on to the next thing. And I wondered if it was the same thing for Barbara Harris, like really being in the moment. And just, like I said, she was an actor's actor. It really was about the craft and the art for her. Um, and, you know, at this point in the 70s, movies were commercial products, but not the way they were going to become in the 80s and beyond. Very, It's even bigger big business now than it was back then. 
Now, sort of on a tangent as a complete aside, but something that I thought about, this takes me to the King, Jun King Kong junket back in 2005, when Jack Black was asked about how he got into character for that movie, and he had a great response. He said, I'm never going to be on Inside the Actor's Studio because it would be so embarrassing to talk about my process. I just stare into space and imagine what it would be like for me to be back in that time. It seems lame, but it works for me. I like this one green field over at UCLA where I went to college. I'd run around there at night screaming and imagine monsters chasing me. And that's pretty fun, actually. And I, at this moment, I think two people, two women who you do not want chasing you right now are Ellie Tynan and Janet Trainer. So this is a great scene because they don't, they barely speak. They share looks and women just know. She knows what's going on. Karen does not want to meet her. And right there, even like there, she thinks she's brushed that contact. That's a, that's a really cool little moment, a great little bit of acting. And I wonder if Meryl Streep actually uh, improv, or they both improv that, it, it, you know, He's now, I mean, that's that, that's embarrassing for them. And this is in front of a room full of people who don't know what's going on. Uh, but that look from her right there, that, that icy look of death. Um, you know, that, that I, again, I really, I love her performance here. And speaking, you know, of, uh, well, these performances here, thinking of how it, it, it's photographed, actually, because a lot of this is very straightforward. And I've, I've heard some criticisms that this film was shot like a TV movie of the week. Uh, and, the, and the Four Seasons got a comparable comparison. Different directors, different cinematographers. But I think there's a certain cinematic restraint at work here. Adam Hollander was a cinematographer. Uh, he was from Poland. And his first DP gig was, no joke, Midnight Cowboy, the first and only X-rated movie to win an Oscar. And he got that gig when his childhood friend Roman Polanski recommended him to director John Schlesinger. Um, you know, and he, he shot other movies, uh, the first two from director Jerry Schatzberg, who directed this movie. It was Puzzle, Puzzle of a Downfall Child and The Panic in Needle Park. The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds from 1972, again at a time when you had epic movie titles that occasionally came along. Later on, there was Promises in the Dark, the mid-1980s movie Making Out. And in 1987, a movie called Street Smart with Christopher Reeve and Morgan Freeman, also directed by Jerry Schatzberg. That's a really interesting film. I remember Reeve came to NYU when I was in film school to show that. And that was a film that Reeve did, but he had to also do Superman 4 for Canon Films in order to make that happen. Interestingly enough, Morgan Freeman is the one that gets the Oscar nomination for that film, but Reeve still did a great job. And it's a really interesting, interesting movie. Now, other movies that Alan Hollander shot include The Dream Team, which is an ensemble comedy featuring uh, Michael Keaton, Christopher Lloyd, and other actors that came out in 89. Then there's I'm Not Rappaport. And Hollander's final feature was 2005's Carlito's Way, Rise to Power, clearly a direct-to-video sequel. Um, there was an Apollo 17 documentary that came out a couple of years ago that features cinematography from Hollander, but I think that was archival stuff. That wasn't something new. But still, he worked on a variety of different movies, but a lot of them were, were very serious. And I think in this film, he and Schatzberg are really very much about capturing the facial expressions. I mean, there's a lot of interesting locations going on here, a lot of stuff going on in the background, but... I don't think you necessarily would want it to be uh, necessarily as dynamic. I, I kind of wonder that some people will say, well, this isn't cinematic enough, but sometimes you don't want to overdo it. I mean, The Four Seasons was sort of the same thing. It had moments that were cinematic, but it wasn't overdone because it's really about the dialogue. And yes, these could have been done as plays, actually, but still there's something about being in those real-world locations that add that extra level to it. Now is that you have an interest in psychology. It's ambiguous. It could mean anything. I love the looks that Barbara Harris gives through this these sequence. That 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 really that amusement there. She's like, "You're a jerk." 
You're an asshole. Um, it really says it all. Now, Francis here, uh, Tynan's aide, is played by Charles Kimbrough, who later got an Emmy nomination for, for Murphy Brown for being on that series. And his character has a lot of balls here to have this conversation away from her husband, but he's trying to do preemptive damage control, and that's something that's, I'm sure, even more of a consideration these days. Um, now, Joe Tynan's going to be coming back home. That's a classic old yellow cab man. Wow, they've changed quite a bit. I love that. You know, something I was thinking about also here, you know, we're talking about a family dynamic and having to put on appearances like you just saw in that last scene with that visual, really visual revelation of what was going on. All the presidents we've had up to this point have been straight married men with kids. That's probably going to change. We'll probably have a gay president at some point, but mostly white as well, except for Barack Obama. So, and of course, our vice president Kamala Harris uh, is a, a, a black and Indian descent, which is great. But, you know, getting back to the straight married men with kids, it's like, a family, a unified family. I was doing research and I found out that California Congresswoman Katie Porter is the only congressperson in office who's a single mother. And right now, uh, Muriel, Muriel Bowser, who's the mayor of DC, and a few other mayors around the country are, singles, are single moms. Muriel actually was purposely a single mom. But, you know, there's this, there's this American ideal that we have to put on, that people aspire to, that you're supposed to do this and this and this to be successful or to be happy in American life. And I'm sure for younger millennials and Gen Z, that's gonna be an entirely different reality. Um, but very much here, it was very much about having what looked like a happy unified family. And also she has to play the good wife. There was of course a series called that. Um, I don't, and I don't, I, I totally understand why she's pissed off here. And I, even though I really hate seeing couples get angry and throwing things, She's gone through quite a lot with this guy, and this is another moment where a character portrayed by Alan Alda has to come to a reckoning and face, you know, the consequences of his actions. And it's amazing, she still clearly, still clearly love each other, but there's a lot of problems, and there's things we don't know backstory-wise about things that had happened before. And this is, this is a film dealing with a lot of serious issues, which was very appropriate for director Jerry Schatzberg. Um, he was active as a director between 1970 and 2000, and he actually was a fashion photographer prior to that, working for the likes of Vogue, Esquire, and McCall's, and he later was a member of the jury at the 2004 Cannes Film Festival. And let's go, over, let's go over some of the films and the issues he was dealing with. He had Puzzle of a Downfall Child in 1970 with Faye Dunaway, deals with abusive relationships, drug addiction, fame, mental illness... Serious stuff. Then Dustin Hoffman co-starred in The Panic in Needle Park in 1971 about a couple who are heroin addicts coping with their addiction and each other's problems. There was a film in 1984 called Misunderstood starring Gene Hackman as a father to two young boys and they're all coping with the loss of their mother and his wife. And then Street Smart 1987, which is dealing with media accountability because Reeves, a reporter in that movie, makes up this fictional pimp character that turns out there is a pimp in New York City with that name. And so he gets called out by the guy and he ends up learning about his life and he gets in a serious education about what goes on in the street. And then there was a Schatzberg film in 1989 called Reunion about two teenage boys, one of whom is Jewish, and the friendship that they have in 1933 Germany with the uh, specter of Nazism on the rise and things happening. So... His first two films are the ones that got Shatsburg the most critical attention, but I like Joe Tynan and Street Smart, and I need to see some of his other films. Um, now, an interesting bit of trivia to note about him, one of Shatsburg's most famous photos was the cover of the Bob Dylan album Blonde on Blonde. And if you remember, that was released in 1966. And there was a book collecting Shatsburg's photos of Dylan that came out in 2006 and was entitled Thin Wild Mercury, 
So interesting that he went from doing that to this. You might not necessarily get the fashion photography background with this film, but that doesn't fit what's going on here. And here we go. Hey, buddy, you made your bed and you have to uh, suffer in it. Just the way that I could also say that you made your bed and she gets to kick you out of it. Now, there's some people who think that this is a low-key movie, uh, maybe as not as dramatic as they think it should be, but I, I kind of disagree, actually. I mean, there are a lot of interesting things going on here. It, yes, this movie is not shot in a super dramatic way. Uh, it's trying to be naturalistic. It's not sensationalizing what's going on. It's preventing it in a certain way, very much like the Alan Alda film, The Four Seasons. And in both productions, the camera really serves as an observer. It's not really here to make things more inciting or inciting or to enliven things. Um, it lets us capture what's going on in the moment. And the performances are, are really more important, I think, in some cases, in the visual the style of the film. You could argue it could have been different, I guess. Could have some more dramatic angles here. But at any rate, you know, in, in watching this scene, I wonder, you know, what would have happened if these two had met at a different time? There's always that thing that goes on with affairs. You know, wrong time, wrong place. Uh, you're not the same person you were before if you had been a different person at that time. I mean, you know, would she, would Karen have been satisfied playing second fiddle to Joe Tynan? I mean, would they have been equal partners? I mean, he's this big liberal senator. Would he have wanted that? He still likes to be in power. And Alda does raise questions about his senator's truly liberal credentials in this story. Um, and, and in the case of the, the affair, I think it's a situation where it's perhaps longing for something that could have been but never will be. And, I, you know, these two characters here are very grounded in their lives in a certain way, and they want to escape from them because they're unhappy in their marriages. Hers is way worse than his. She's clearly very unsatisfied. And this, watching this, you know, reminded me of a film I really enjoyed that came out in 2003. And it's an Italian film directed by Gabriel Macino, who also later would do The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith. And the film I'm talking about is Remember Me, My Love. In Italian, it's Ricordarte di Me. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And it, it deals with the concept of an affair between two middle-aged people. There's a man who's married. He's got two kids. And he bumps into his ex-girlfriend, by the way, I love the scene here. It's like, oh, wow, hey. It's just kind of funny the way this is played. Anyway, so this married man bumps into his old flame who has a kid and is now divorced. And they have this sort of exchange where they talk about, oh, these bastards got us in the prime of our lives. And I think that affair is a chance to relive something or perhaps go back in time to, to what maybe they could, the kind of people that they could have been. I don't know that this is really going to change thing here here for Tynan or Trainer in this movie. And by the way, I, I'm pretty I believe this is JFK, an old wing of JFK that's no longer there. Although there's now a JFK hotel that is trying to recreate the vibe of the the JFK airport in the 1970s. Um, you could not run through security like that today. Unless, maybe, I guess, if you were famous, you couldn't do that anymore. Things have certainly changed. Um, we have a lot more security now. We had air marshals on flights back then, and then in the 80s, Reagan regulated the airline industry, so we didn't have them anymore. Um, but still, it's just kind of amusing when you watch stuff like that today. It was a slightly more carefree time, despite the fact that we did have a threat of terrorism from the Middle East. Now, Streep has been in other movies that have dealt with marital conflicts. In 1986, he was in a movie Heartburn with Jack Nicholson, and they played a couple that had been married before. They get married, she gets pregnant, he has an extramarital affair, and it deals with that issue. So he's on the other side of that sort of in this movie. And then in She-Devil in the late 80s, which I believe was a Susan Seidelman film, she plays a successful novelist, and Roseanne Barr is this overweight housewife whose husband has an affair with Streep's character. So she's often been in films dealing with these kinds of things. Um, 
And she's really great here. I mean, her character is struggling with her own patterns. I mean, clearly she's been in this situation before and she's in her own cycle. And it's like, there's these, these things that are going on and she's younger, but I think she's almost wiser than he is. I think this is new territory for him. And for her, it's just part of the same old thing. And she really needs to identify these patterns. So it's, it's, it's kind of a sad moment, but she played it really well and adds an extra layer, I think, to the movie because of that. And here we are at the Democratic National Convention. This was reportedly shot at the Baltimore Arena, although back then it was known as the Civic Center. I, I've read that somewhere in this crowd, you can allegedly see then Baltimore City Comptroller Hyman Pressman, I think more during one of the cheering shots. So uh, I, I haven't really had time to Google that, but I guess if you can, or if you know him from that time period, great. Now, this of course is a convention that takes place long before the technology overdrive of today. You do not see any giant uh, high definition televisions back there. There's no news feed going on. You don't see a giant video display here at the convention. It's very simple. It's amplified. There's not as much music. You're not trying to pump people up. Again, it's kind of like talk shows do the same thing. Like you try to get the audience going. You're trying to keep an energy level up. And here people are really interested in the politics, but there's other things that seem to go on. You know, and to me, movies are like time travel. You really get the chance to see what people sounded like, dressed like, etc. cetera, uh, the conventions and the, and the mores of the day. Obviously, the, I guess the best time travel would be a documentary from that time period. But still, I love watching old movies like this um, and doing commentaries on them. Now, I did find an interesting quote from Jerry Schatzberg on Alan Alda um, because uh, he had actually been, uh, he had done a screening of this movie with Mike Shulman five years ago at the IFC uh, Center in New York City in the West Village. And he actually revealed something that was not as positive about Alda, which surprised Shulman, who wasn't sure he, it almost seems like he didn't believe it, but from what I read, but so he, so Schatzberg said, I'm used to working with wonderful actors who I can give the freedom to change dialogue and improvise. And I find I get the best performances that way. Now, in a set of this movie, every time an actor would change a word, Alda would stop shooting and say, no, 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 he'd stick to the words, but he did change his own dialogue and Barbara Harris called him on that once. He was very upset about that, but I guess he just felt it was his and he wanted it to be his completely. And that kind of ties into what I read about the Four Seasons, that being an actor, writer, and director, he had said during that, that press cycle that essentially he really got the script down first. He had done like a dozen drafts of the Four Seasons. So that way then he could get into the acting and directing part. But I guess there were times, you know, this was his first time as a writer, so it was probably more precious to him. You learn as a writer to go on to not be precious about things and you have to cut away things you don't want to. But who knows? But still, overall, you know, is, is, is an acclaimed actor. Um, now here that guest tag right there on Ellie's blouse, that's perhaps unintentionally symbolic of where the marriage is headed as he chases the presidency. She's going to now be part of an entourage and not just his wife. You know, she and their kids are going to be living life in a fishbowl. And, you know, right now he's spouting out all the usual contrition cliches. You know, I, I, want, I, I want to make this work. I'm sorry it happened, blah, blah, blah. I wonder if that's really going to work here. And and she's clearly weighing that. But, you know, this comes about around at the worst possible time here because he's announcing his candidacy for the presidency and he's and he's trying to, to do something on a major scale. But what's what's left there for her? So it's, it's surprising to me how many male politicians just screw up their careers, you know, like with, with an affair, you know, relationship problems, other things. And it's interesting that they seem disciplined, you know, in their own careers, but not in their private lives, you know, as if they're actually 
living two separate lives. And you're actually seeing this here with him. I mean, he's very casual about the way he treats the affair, but a lot of people do that. A lot of people, when they're doing something like that, if there's nobody really around to say anything, no friend to say anything to them, they kind of go along, they know it's not right, but somehow they can separate that out. And there are some people for whom they know they they have uh, they have a public life and a private life, but then there are some people that don't necessarily can necessarily split apart the two. And I think Joe Tynan is going to be having to be dealing with the fact that a lot of his personal life is really going to be intruding on his his marital life, and that's going to change the family dynamic. So, and I and I can sympathize with her because now things really are just out of her control. Before, I mean, she's done everything for him, and so again, I totally feel for her when she had that. That, that moment where she just threw all of his papers everywhere and wanted to, to, to create chaos in his life. That's a very good visual metaphor there. And you have to wonder now, does, is she going to accept being part of this machine? And does she want to be? Now, I've heard it said that the seduction of Joe Tynan is an updating of the Oscar-winning 1972 film The Candidate, which was made by director Michael Ritchie. Now, it wasn't a financially successful film. But it got a claim and it starred Robert Redford as a long shot Democratic candidate in the race for uh, the California governor's seat. Now, uh, Peter Boyle is this sort of uh, well-known, I guess he's the campaign manager, but he's also a political consultant. He really knows his things. And he's like, you know what? You're free to campaign however you want because this Republican governor just seems unbeatable. You know, it's not going to happen. But at first, I think he does a more extreme campaign, that kind of, but then kind of comes closer to the middle and he starts getting closer to winning. And then things change. And in the end his character does win. And Redford is kind of, after he he, he wins uh, the election, he goes in this back room before facing the media and he asks Boyle, like, what do we do now? And he gets no answer. And in some ways, I guess that is, that is where this film does echo that one, that here he is getting to the high point in his life, but now he's, he's starting to get emotionally estranged from his wife. And the question is, what do we do now? But he's not going to be really asking that, I think, of the political people around that. He's going to be asking that of his wife, and we're going to be seeing that in a moment when they exchange looks. So, you know, I really feel like Joe Tynan does have an ambiguous ending. Don't be fooled by the Wikipedia summary or maybe some other plot summaries that people have given of the film. And, of course, you don't really want to give that away in a summary anyway. But, uh, you know, it, it really looks like Ellie could cut and run at, at, at any point. I don't think she's made up her mind here. And, I, you know, I like how Alda brings that drama in at the end and shows how hard it is for people in the political process. And I think you would actually apply this to anybody who's in any, any sort of public figure, that they have to cope with personal issues and personal failings while dealing with professional triumphs and pitfalls. So I can't, I could never imagine being a public speaker and at the, right before you go on, something really serious has happened. I think it takes a lot. And that's where the some performers are amazing and you have to admire them for having a really bad day and then getting on stage and letting it loose. But that's, I guess what I was saying earlier about Streep trying to deal with the tragedy in her life, getting into this role. Now, right here, you're going to be seeing this, this sea of people that is separating, you know, Joe and Ellie Tynan. And it is not just simply uh, a reality. It's a visual metaphor for the gulf in their marriage. Um, this is the double life that now they're going to start leading if she chooses to stay with him. Um, and he's and, and we don't know. And I think that's kind of what's brave about this movie is that I don't think it is a pad ending. And there were a lot of films in the 70s that didn't want to give you the happy ending. We got into the 80s and things were much more about solving the crisis or solving the problem. Yes, they'll get back together. Yes, they'll do this. I'm not sure in this case. And this goes back to that, that book by Myra McPherson about the fact that the Washington wives have long accepted, or a lot of them have long accepted the way they've been treated. And maybe it's about time to make a change. In my mind, I think Ellie's gonna make a change. 
Um, and there is this Mona Lisa moment right here where, yeah, she's, it, you think she's going to smile. And she does, but I'm wondering, you know, is she smiling because, you know, yes, you, I'm very proud of you and we've done things together and I still love you. Uh, or is there that side of it like, I'm smiling because, you know what, I think this is over. Um, at any rate, I think it was ahead of its time in that regard. Um, and it's, it's an underrated film. I think in 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 all the canons of the of the stars and the director, and of course as Alda as a writer, I don't think it gets as much attention as a lot of his other work. I don't think a lot of Alda's direct uh, directorial stuff it really gets as much attention as being Hawkeye on Mash and doing other roles in other places. But at any rate, that is the seduction of Joe Tynan. I hope you enjoyed watching the film if you've never seen it before, or I hope you enjoy revisiting it if it's been a while. And uh, thank you very much for listening to my commentary. I try to dig into as much trivia and go through as much as I can. I know I'm known for being fast-paced. I, I, this is the only one opportunity I get to do this and for you to hear this information. At any rate, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to speaking to you again on another Kino Lorber commentary track. <laughs>